We welcome each of you to this hour of worship. I'm glad to see you all here as we come together to worship God together on this uh, special day. We have uh, several announcements to call to your attention. One is that uh, activities tonight are a little different than the usual. There are no regular Sunday night programs for children, youth, or, well, they are for youth, but not for adults. Um, the annual Halloween Carnival and Trunk or Treat occurs this afternoon. Join us from 4 to 6.30 as we light the night um, with, with Christ and the celebration of this day. Um, please invite your family and friends to make plans to be here for this great evening of fun. Also, there's a reminder that our monthly Wednesday night supper is this coming Wednesday night, 5.30. Uh, menu is chicken and dumplings, green beans, cranberry salad, coleslaw, pumpkin pound cake. And there will be uh, pizza and activities for the children um, after dinner. There is one more week to join the children of our church in bringing items for Operation Christmas Child. Um, we call your attention to the back of the church, the Christmas tree, to learn more information about this or speak with Katie Jeter if you have any more questions. Let us remember in our prayers a couple of folks in the hospital, Margaret Williams and Dan Sims, who've been in all week, and Dan longer than that. Uh, certainly uh, remember these folks in your prayers. Tomorrow is the deadline for signing up for basketball of all, for all ages. Uh, we're doing this online this year at greerchurch.com, so um, be sure to get signed up to play basketball if that is something you had planned to do. Uh, it is, uh, you, ever, you ever heard the expression, you know, if I'd known you were coming, I'd have baked a cake? Well, if I'd known all these district superintendents were going to be here, I might have baked a better sermon. Uh, <laughs> we've got uh, Susan Leonard Ray, the district superintendent over in Anderson, and uh, is here with her family and um, sitting with Warren and Shirley. I was looking to see if Keith was here. But Keith, is, he's working, I guess. You had to leave him over at Clemson United Methodist Church where he is the pastor. Uh, I look out and I see um, um, the straights back with us after a, an extended absence. And, and my cousin, Ted Holt Walter, we are kin. We have found that out. About 16th cousins, if you go back far enough. Uh, Ted and Peggy Lee are here. So uh, I just am sorry that you have to have my sermon. Maybe I'll get Susan up here in a few minutes. But uh, anyway, uh, glad that you, that you all are here as well as you good folks. Methodist men will be meeting on Sunday morning, the 14th of November, for a breakfast and to make plans for next year. George Strait will be the speaker. So men and sons are invited to be here at 730 in the social hall. I think that's all the announcements today. Uh, let us now begin our time together in worship.
Our affirmation of faith is the Apostles' Creed found on page 881. Let us unite in this historic confession of the Christian faith. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Be seated, please. And speaking of district superintendents, how could I overlook Dennis Lee sitting right there? Another, sorry, Dennis, very new member, Dennis and Marcia. Didn't see you sitting there. This time, uh, we'd like to invite the children to come forward to join Katie Jeter for a few moments of sharing. working is it doesn't sound like the song that's okay happy halloween it's halloween isn't it since we're having halloween tonight i'm going to talk about something other than halloween this morning is that okay okay i know that a lot of you play basketball right how many people like basketball or like to play yeah girls and boys sometimes right yeah well there are several things that are important if you want to be a good basketball player what are some of those things? You got to practice. Is it good to have good hands? Because what do you have to do with your hands during basketball? Dribble, pass, shoot. Yeah. A good player has to dribble well, throw the ball well, catch the ball well. Lots of things with your hands. Um, and is it good to have quick feet? Yeah, you got to be fast. So those are skills that you can develop, right? You can learn those things, don't you think? If you can practice enough, you can learn those things. Well, there's something else that's helpful with basketball that you can't really develop, no matter how hard you work. What do you think that is? How tall you are? Is it good to be tall? Can you work on becoming taller? Not really. Well... Did you know that most professional basketball players are almost seven feet tall now? That's pretty tall, isn't it? And no matter how hard you try, you can't be that tall if God didn't make you to be that tall, can you? No. Well, several years ago, there was a basketball player by the name of Nate Archibald. Have you ever heard that name before? I hadn't either. Well, when Nate finished college, the professional teams ignored him because they thought he was too short. And you know what his nickname was? You know what they called him? Tiny. That's how short he was. But there was one team, the Cincinnati Royals, that decided to take a chance on him, and they signed Nate to their team. Well, Nate made it big in the NBA because he was really fast, 
He had really good hands, and he was a great shooter. He ended up playing in the NBA for 14 seasons, and he became known as the player who proved that a little man could play in the NBA. And he won all kinds of awards and honors for being so good. He was named to the All-NBA team five times. He was named to the NBA All-Star team six times, and he was elected to the NBA Hall of Fame. That's a pretty good basketball player, don't you think? Yeah. Not too bad for a man that most people thought was too short to even play in the NBA. Well, there's a story in the Bible that tells us about another man who, who became great, even though he was not very tall. Have you ever heard about that character in the Bible? Can you think of who that might be? We learn a song about him sometimes. His name is Zacchaeus. I know that most of you have maybe heard the story of Zacchaeus, but he was not only short, he was hated by a lot of people because he was a tax collector. Do you know what that, a tax collector is? We've talked about that before, haven't we? Well, a tax collector often cheated people and took even more money than they should have, so they weren't liked sometimes. Well, one day Zacchaeus heard that Jesus was coming to town. He had heard about Jesus, and he wanted to see him for himself. But he was so short that he knew he wouldn't be able to see Jesus when he was walking down the street. So what did he do? Climbed up in the tree, that's right, so that he would be able to see Jesus when he walked by. As Jesus passed by, he saw Zacchaeus up in the tree, and he said, Come down, because I'm going to your house today. So Zacchaeus climbed down, and he took Jesus to his house. And while Jesus was there, Zacchaeus told Jesus that he was really sorry for what he had done, for the wrong he had done, and for when he had taken too much money and that he wanted to give half of everything he had to the poor people. He also said that he would repay anyone he, that he had cheated four times what he took. He may not have been very tall, but Zacchaeus became a giant in God's kingdom that day because he decided to follow Jesus. So we may not be very tall right now or ever, but we can be a giant in God's eyes if we follow Jesus. Does that sound like a good plan? Yeah. Okay, why don't you close your eyes and pray with me. Repeat after me. Dear Lord, we are thankful that you don't care whether we are big or small. Help us to be willing to follow Jesus and stand tall for him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to call on our uh, finance committee chairperson, Bill Clute, this time to introduce the stewardship speaker of the day. Enjoyed that story on Tiny Archibald, but kind of shows that's a relative term because I met Tiny years ago. He's no shorter than I am. I guess he's just short in the NBA. On November 21st, we're going to have Consecration Sunday. This is the Sunday where we will make our annual financial pledge to the church and to God. There will be one service here in the sanctuary. It will be at 10 a.m., and George Strait will be our speaker. 
Immediately afterwards, in the Family Life Center, we will have a meal. Now the ushers, if they're ready back there, uh, they're going to pass out meal reservation cards. We need to get a head count of how many people are going to be here on that Sunday. We hope you can make it. If you could fill out these cards and place it in the offering plate, it would be a big help. And these weeks leading up to November 21st, each Sunday in both of our services, we're going to have somebody from the congregation come up and speak to you about what stewardship means to them. And it's a difficult task to do to get up here and talk to people. Uh, don't want to embarrass yourself. Arthur and I have no pride. We've embarrassed ourselves many times, so we have no problem getting up here talking. But we have many people coming up this, mo this morning and in the next few weeks that um, aren't used to this. So please give them your support. And we're very thankful this morning to have Adam Wycliffe coming to us. Good morning. Good morning. Oh, good. Everybody's awake. That's good. Well, I'm really honored to be able to speak to you about the meaning of stewardship as we move toward Consecration Sunday. Each year we, ask to, we are asked to consider the question of what part of my income does God call me to give? While considering this, we should look at the greater question of what does this church mean to us? What does it mean to me? This is a question I asked myself when I was writing this. Church is not only a place I go each week, it's a place within my heart. My faith is continually built, not just within these walls, but by the people who sit beside you. Look at the people beside you, it's these people. The people who bolster my faith, who encourage me at every step, and those who look for my dog when she goes missing. Church is not a place I go, it is a place where I belong. It's a place where we belong. The wealth in our possession, that's God's wealth, that he has entrusted to us. That which I possess are gifts from God. He commits us to make the best decisions with our time, our talents, and our money. Stewardship is far more than that which, which we place in the collection plate. It's everything we do after we profess our faith and our belief. It's doing what is best for the place where we belong. I ask that you prayerfully consider your gifts to God for the coming year, for this place in which we all belong. Bill, if we could get some of those reservation cards passed to the choir, that might be good. They look like they're looking for something to do. Here now our Old Testament reading from Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens. And count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, 
so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Here ends the lesson. Our responsive reading is Psalm 19, uh, which is on page 750 in your hymnal. I invite you to stand as you're able as we share God's word responsively. The heavens are telling the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims God's handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech, there are, nor are there words, their voice is not heard. Yet their voice goes out to all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them God has set a tent for the sun, which comes forth like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and runs its course with joy like a strong man. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hid from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Also keep your servant from the insolent. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Our epistle reading is from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, reading through chapter 4, verse 2. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed, and is useful, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the, the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, 
who will judge the living and the dead. And in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Here ends the lesson.
unite our hearts together in prayer. Lord, it truly is an amazing thing that you've called us to be a part of the body of Christ in our day. It is an amazing thing because of how long it has lasted. Coming from a time when the powers and rulers tried everything they could to eradicate the church from the face of the earth. Till today, we see that you have blessed your church, and indeed, the church is of God and will endure to the end of the age. Thank you for calling us to be part of this living body of Christ in our world today, what a privilege it is that you've called us to this historic institution. We celebrate this day, Lord, that you have never turned loose of the hand of your church. When, like a child, we have wandered off the path, you have sent reformers here time and again to bring us back and we celebrate the Reformation this day, the Reformation of our church, where you caused the Bible to be rediscovered, among other things, and the faith was rediscovered. And so we give you thanks for the gift of the Bible to us and how it inspires and guides us and how again and again throughout history the proclamation of the good news of the Bible has corrected your people and your church when we've lost our way. We're thankful for this. We're thankful that we still have what the world needs. That we have the one who is the hope of the world. And that we represent the one where that wherever the good news of his life goes, people's lives are turned around. And institutions come along where healing and education follows. How wonderful it is, Lord, what you're doing through the gospel of Jesus Christ and through your church. And we pray that as we look to the near future here at Memorial United Methodist Church, you would remind us of the privilege that is ours, 
and also the hope that is yours, that we will represent you in such a way that Greer will be impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ and that lives will be changed and that everyone will find in you their heavenly Father who loves them. Lord, we are especially mindful of our friends who are not able to be here this day because of illness, and we pray for them, for their swift recovery. We also pray for those who are struggling to find work, who are discouraged in life, those husbands and wives that are estranged, those parents and children that are alienated from one another right now. It is our belief, O oh God, that none of these are more powerful than the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray for these various needs. In that mighty name, as he taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is today. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Let us now worship God by giving.
this morning at the early service. And you know, there we use a, a computer to project the words of scripture and other pictures and things on the screen there. A slide had just been flashed up on the wall that indicated that the sermon title was Reformed by the Word. And the next thing we all saw on the screen was a, a, a big window from Microsoft along with the word, the computer is preparing to hibernate. <clears throat> now, I've put people to sleep before, but that's the first time my sermon title put a computer down. <clears throat> we had to uh, recover that somehow if we could. The uh, gospel lesson is from John chapter 5, verses 36 through 40. Jesus is speaking and he says, I have testimony weightier than that of John for the very work that the Father has given me to finish and which I am doing testifies that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You've never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you. For you do not believe the one he sent. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Here ends the lesson. I've noticed that even though this church, like many others, has numerous bulletin boards all over the place, and even though we mail you a weekly bulletin and a monthly newsletter, there's something else that we do around here when we really want to call your attention to an event or an announcement. We tape a notice of that event to the glass doors leading into the Family Life Center or into the educational building or social hall, too, and that way, as you're coming into church, you stare right at the important announcement. You can't miss it, we hope. Now, that practice of using a church door as a bulletin board isn't something that we invented in our uh, modern day of Xerox machines. It dates way back in history. In fact, in the Middle Ages, it was common practice to use the church's massive wooden doors as the community bulletin board. So it was on this date, October 31st, in 1517, that a monk named Martin Luther tacked a list of questions up on the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. Luther wanted to start a discussion about some of the practices of his church. And his document, known as the 95 Theses, was the opening volley in a debate that led to a major split in the church between the historic church and the Protestant reformers. Three and a half years later, in April of 1521, at, at Worms, Germany, that same young man was led into a torch-lit hall. It was filled with nobility. He had been brought there to answer the charges of being a heretic. He isn't allowed to speak in his own defense because he has already been excommunicated by the church. He is therefore a non-person. He was 
excommunicated for asking all those questions and also for writing three books that had challenged the official teachings of the church. He had charged that the church was wrong in their teaching about salvation because the church taught that salvation came through works like penance, receiving the sacraments, and through the purchase of indulgences. Luther wrote that salvation was earned for us by Jesus Christ on the cross and that faith and faith alone was all that was necessary for salvation. In this torch-lit hall, Luther was asked to retract all of his statements, and he responded, Unless I can be shown in the word of God, or by clear reason, I will not retract. He went on to say that church councils and leaders, even the Pope, must be subordinate in importance to the Bible. In saying this, Luther was setting the tone for the entire Reformation because one of the Protestant battle cries has been, the Bible alone is our authority. Our faith, our style, our lifestyle, our message, our doctrines all come from that one spring from which the saving power of God is continually flowing. The scripture is the source of Christian doctrine. It anchors our faith, keeps us from going after the latest religious fad. It is indeed the light for our path and the lamp for our feet. It normalizes our faith, sensitizing our hearts to the will of God. And as 2 Timothy tells us, it is useful for teaching for rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, making us wise for salvation through Christ Jesus. Now the word Bible really means library, indicating that this wonderful book is actually a collection of books. How did it come into being? Well, several steps brought it to us. First, we're told that God inspired it. Now please note that it says that the Bible was inspired and not dictated. There's a big difference. Inspired literally means breathed by God. God breathed. In scripture, God's breath is usually associated with life-giving, with birth. The scripture is alive with God's very life in it and showing how he interacts with us in our human lives. God, you see, involved himself with human beings from the very beginning, revealing himself as our creator, redeemer, and sustainer. Those early humans repeated the stories of their encounters with God, and for many years, that's the way human beings kept alive the word of God through stories repeated to one another, late in the evening around campfires. This is oral tradition, as it is formally called. After human beings became dependent on reading and writing, the stories were finally written down. Now, in allowing human beings to have a part in the transmission of God's word, God did not rob them of their own personalities and styles 
and their humanity and personalities can easily be found in the Bible. But God's spirit can also be found there, aiding in how the stories were remembered and repeated and how they were written down. And we can tell that the scripture is indeed inspired because God breathes his life into us today through the Bible as we read it. Now, God could have dictated it, or he could have dropped it down out of heaven on tablets of gold by some string, as other groups claim for their sacred texts. But wouldn't that be a very weak God who would have to be that protective of his measure, of his message, rather? One of my seminary professors pointed out to us how true this was when God chose to come to us on earth in human flesh. He said uh, that was a real risk, and we all know that that is true about the uh, fragile nature of human life. But when God decided to come here, he didn't come with an escort, uh, being escorted by angels. He came the natural way, through parents and through birth and through toddling and becoming a child and growing on up into adulthood. The written word came to us the same way, through human beings. In both cases, the written word and Jesus, human beings delivered the word to us. The word came to us through human flesh. The prophets delivered it. The Virgin Mary delivered it. And then the professor in seminary said to us, you know, only a God who is all-powerful would dare to send his word to us in such a manner. But a God who really is all-powerful would dare to come to earth this way, being born to peasant parents, being written down by human beings when it comes to the written word. Later on, humans led by the Spirit were allowed to decide which writings would be included in our Bibles and which would not be included, using several very simple things as their criteria. One is, does it testify to the truth of God's saving grace through Christ? Secondly, is it necessary or is it redundant? And thirdly, who wrote that? That was very important too. Who was the author? Unfortunately, Christians don't always agree on how to interpret the Bible, and that was true from day one. And that is why the church found it necessary to come up with some creeds to give us some guidance as we go about interpreting it. Early on, the church formulated the Apostles' Creed, which is called that not because the apostles uh, created it, but because it summarized accurately the basics that the apostles had delivered uh, to the church. Later on, it became necessary to formulate the Nicene Creed as the church struggled in trying to understand the nature of Jesus and the triune God. These creeds defined the right interpretation of scripture. And today, Christians still don't agree on all points of interpretation or emphasis, even though each of us in our different denominations claim that we've got the corner on the truth. I'm glad to say we Methodists don't do that. We're quick to say that this is our understanding, but we're glad to hear your understanding as well. We work with others so beautifully and don't just claim the Bible as our sole possession. One book I read recently 
listed several, diff uh, several different approaches to interpreting the Bible, saying that Christians interpret the Bible in these ways. Fundamentalism, conservatism, neo-orthodox, liberal, charismatic, evangelical, and existentialist. And when you add to that uh, soup the fact that there are lots of sections in the Bible that are very difficult to understand. Anybody read Revelation lately? You see why the Bible is um, one of the, uh, is the most purchased book in the world, but often the one that is least read. It has more dust than fingerprints on it in most of our homes. So the question becomes, if the Bible is interpreted in so many different ways, how do we go about interpreting it correctly? Let me offer you some suggestions which come to us from our church heritage. The first I want to say to you is, you need to recognize that you do interpret, interpret scripture. From time to time I hear people say, I don't interpret the Bible, I just read it. Folks, that's not a very enlightened thing to say. That's like saying, I've never studied English, I've never looked at definitions of anything, because we all bring our current knowledge with us when we open the Bible. We all interpret the Bible. We interpret life every day. We bring certain preconceived notions with us as we open our Bibles. To deny this is to, de to, to deny that you've ever thought. Now here's one of my uh, proofs that you do interpret scripture. Why are you here today instead of yesterday? The Bible says to worship God on the Sabbath. That was yesterday. Saturday when y'all were watching TV to see who would win those ball games. Uh, that's the Sabbath. Why aren't we worshiping on the Sabbath? Well, because Christians decided that the day of Jesus' resurrection, Sunday, trumped God's resting on the Saturday from creation. And therefore, Sunday would be the day from now on that we got together to worship because that was the day Jesus was raised to life. And that was certainly more important than what had happened on Saturday. You must believe that interpretation of Scripture is the correct one or else you would not be here today. Some of us had bacon this morning, a meat clearly prohibited in the Old Testament. But you know, Jesus said, it's not what goes into our mouth that defiles us. It's those words that come out of our mouths. And Paul said it didn't matter what you ate. You must agree with that interpretation if, like me, you like bacon. And none of you ladies are wearing hats this morning when the Bible clearly says that you shouldn't be in church without covering your head. These facts show that you do indeed interpret Scripture and you're not biblical literalists. Well, since we all interpret Scripture we must ensure that we have a sound method for so doing. To have a sound method, we must remember, first of all, that the central theme of the Bible uh, is a story of God's salvation, his work of saving his people, culminating in Jesus. When we lose sight of that focus, then scripture can easily be misused. And it has been misused throughout history to argue in favor of slavery, in opposition of women being allowed to vote, among other things. It's been used to oppose scientific advances. 
Jesus warned us that we could misuse the Bible if we're not careful, pointing out that he is the focus of Scripture. You diligently study the Scriptures because you think by them you possess eternal life, he said. These Scriptures testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Look again at the words of Timothy. The Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Salvation is the focus. In fact, the phrase, the Word of God, is used in the New Testament primarily as a name for the Savior, not the writings. Christ, the Word of God, must be the focus. Another trusted method of interpretation is to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. Practically speaking, that means we need to read it from cover to cover because so much of the New Testament is a reinterpretation of the Old. The Old Testament was very particular about food. Paul in Romans declares food not to be that important. The Old Testament demanded an eye for an eye. Jesus said we'd be better off to turn the other cheek. If we remember to interpret all Scripture in light of the cross and the New Testament, we will avoid many uh, misinterpretations. There is a progressive revelation from God to us in Scripture. We didn't get the full picture in the beginning. Only over many years did God reveal himself to his people. Yet another help is to look at the church's interpretation throughout history. We're not the first generation to struggle with the Bible to find some meaning. It isn't our sole possession. There have been 20 centuries of interpretation before ours, and those interpretations are available to us through the commentaries. Fourthly, to properly interpret scripture, we must first ask the question, what did the writer originally mean by what he wrote? And how did the listeners who first heard these words, how did they understand the message? Well, earlier I mentioned about ladies and hats. In 1 Corinthians, Paul instructs women to wear hats when you go to church. Fifty years ago, when I was a child, that was a good excuse to go shopping for a new hat, ladies. And as a child growing up at Bethel Church in Spartanburg, put up in the balcony because of my uh, bad behavior, my parents sat up there, it was great. I could hide behind those big hats, and the preacher never would see me sleep or misbehave. But before we all dash out to buy a hat, let's ask ourselves, why did Paul tell those women of Corinth to wear a hat or covering? Well, in that culture, in that day, honorable women wore head coverings all the time. They still do that today in that culture. Dishonorable women, women of ill repute, did not cover their heads in public. So Paul is telling Christian women in Corinth, some of whom had been less than honorable in their earlier lives, to witness to their community that the church is a place where people behave honorably toward one another and respectfully to one another. We aren't like that pagan temple over there who, where who knows what goes on. We may be sinners saved by grace, but when we go to church, it is a place of decency. Certainly that's a good lesson for today, with or without hats, if we understand the original meaning. 
We should also remember that the purpose of the Bible was to collect the sacred stories of God's interaction with his people. It has some accurate historical facts in it, but it wasn't written as a history book. It contains some scientifically verifiable events, but it never was intended to be an authoritative science book. And it was written from the point of view of human beings who lived in the pre-scientific era. Its intention is simple, to bring us into a relationship with God the Father through Christ his Son. It is, by its own admission, selective. The writer selected some things and left other things out so that you and I might be convinced that Jesus is the Christ. That explains why we can't answer some questions like, I wonder who Cain married? It just wasn't considered to be an important question back then. Oh, but the empty tomb, now that was important. That was important to include. May the study of Holy Scripture guide us to spiritual maturity. Amen.